We're proud to have this episode sponsored by ShakePay, the easiest way for Canadians to buy and earn Bitcoin. I love using ShakePay because it's fast, it's easy, the app is great, and it doesn't hurt that they give away free sats, which is free Bitcoin every day just for shaking your phone. They also have the ShakePay prepaid Visa card issued by People's Trust that earns you up to 2% cash back in Bitcoin. Not points you have to redeem, just Bitcoin added to your account automatically. Like I said, ShakePay really is the easiest way for Canadians to buy and earn Bitcoin. So join the over 1 million Canadians already on ShakePay. Sign up is fast and free. It's so easy, a boomer can do it. Plus, sign up for ShakePay with the promo code LOONIEHOUR and you'll receive $10 after you buy your first $100 worth of Bitcoin. That's promo code LOONIEHOUR. Thank you, ShakePay. Now back to the show. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 62. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management in his brand new Patagucci vest. And Rich Diaz, fresh off a hot new date of Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Richard, what's going on, buddy? You almost was, missed the show. New date. Oh, my God. It was not a date. Uh, you're going to get me into a lot of trouble. Thank you, Steve. appreciate that. No, what's going on is it snowed four inches in London. And, of course, um, and in the UK. And that was basically a complete and uh, unmitigated national disaster, combined with everyone really excited for a little bit of snow. So it's very funny being Canadian, Growing up in Montreal, where you're used to 30, 40 inches of snow, who knows how much snow. Here, everything shuts down. The trains are down. The schools are down. The buses are down. They don't clear the snow. And, and it's just, it's really quite shambles. But, um, but other than that, uh, yeah, nothing going on. The, the World oh. Cup's winding down. And uh, that's it. No dates to speak of. Thank you, Steve. But uh, oh, hold on. Didn't you take, did you take your date for, for lunch? No, that was not was at it? all what happened. Was it lunch or dinner? Because if it's Let's lunch, that's, how you, get, that's how you end up in the friend zone. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> Keith? Well, actually, I'm now, I'm, I'm curious as well. About, what do you do on a date, Rich? Like, what do... Oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. That's not what happened. <laughs> Let's focus she's, on the snow in the World Cup, boys. Let's she's probably this. listening to this show, too. We're going international. Well, I'd be surprised if anyone's listening to this, this show, but... Um... <laughs> Like, so did Very you go like for a walk in, in the park or did you? No, that's not what happened. <laughs> it wasn't a date. <laughs> Keith really showing his age here. Just take a Miss Ice Cap uh, for a stroll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, guys. So I'm excited. We're almost at year end. You know, it's today's Thursday, December the 15th, which is. Uh, 10 days. Actually, I know. This is one of the, in, in the, uh, in, in, you know, my monetary world i like to live in it's an outstanding day with the ecb the bank of england the fed was out yesterday the, the bank of canada guy was talking and my god if you're not excited now or actually i think what's happening people have become fatigued with with you know 23 and uh you know everybody's now looking forward to next year but you know we got a couple of weeks left for uh for markets to see how we end up and uh, as Rich was uh, commenting earlier, so again, today is Thursday, guys. I don't mean that trying to be funny, but man, Marcus are just getting mullered here today. They're, they're getting whacked around pretty good, except for the dollar, which I think will tie into the theme. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the bonds are, uh, the duration is, is, is pretty good there right now. It's up a little bit. But uh, yeah, guys, this is good. That's, yeah. uh, it's, let's it hop into it. Yeah, lot, lots to chat about this week. Um, you know, as we head into the year end here, everyone's sort of checking their portfolio statements and and looking forward to the year ahead and of, of what's to come. And so people have asked about our show here. Uh, we don't, as far as I'm aware, I'm not taking any breaks. Um, so next week we'll have another show that gets released as, as on on schedule. Uh, we'll, we'll keep banging them out here over the holiday season. So, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. And 
I think we're going to actually try this is I haven't even discussed this to you guys, but I, I think we we're going to try to do like a, some sort of Q and a over the holiday season, um, just to try to bring the Looney hour community together. Um, so that stay tuned for that. We'll announce some details. So if you want to sort of jump on with us, chat about markets, et cetera, uh, we'll, you'll have that opportunity to do so, but yeah, huge week this week. We had, uh, Canadian national housing figures released today. You had us CPI a few days ago. You had the fed out the ECB, the bank of England. So all the big dogs out, um, basically getting in their final statements of the year. So we'll kind of keep you guys updated on that. Uh, but let's, let's, uh, let's open it up here with the, as usual, the Canadian housing side, the national housing figures came out this morning. So the uh, home home sales fell 39% on a year-over-year basis in the month of November. So again, if you're a mortgage broker or realtor or whatever, uh, you know, basically a 40% cut in your sales volume. And then, uh, you know, prices continuing to decline. Um, this is really the the story that remains to be told really is, is ongoing, which is national house prices fell another 1.4% in the month of November. Prices are now down. So if they peaked in March, so prices are now down 16.4% since peaking. Uh, so that's the steepest decline from a peak to trough perspective since that national home price index was created in 2005. Now, again, keep in mind, guys, I'm not talking about the average sale price or the median sale price, right? Like if you have an average sales price that can be volatile, like if the composition of housing changes, i.e., less luxury houses are selling and more one bedroom condos are selling of course your average price will decline this is a home price index which strips out sort of that volatility it adjusts for the composition of sales of homes that are selling so what that's telling me is like the the fact that you have a 16% decline from peak drop that prices are still declining by more than 1% a month is pretty significant now the one thing that if you parse through this data, it's not all doom and gloom, which is it's kind of the story that we've been talking about for many, many months now, which is sellers are still not flooding the market. So house prices are horrible. Sales are down 40%. Interest rates are way up. Surely it's the time to panic, hit the sell button. Everyone's going to start foreclosing. Um, it was the second. Did you say surely? Yeah, surely. Surely. Do you know her? <laughs> Thanks for interrupting me. Oh, Keith. it was a terrible joke. <laughs> Sellers are not flooding the market. Second weakest month of November for new listings in 17 years. So I believe it was 2019 was the was the worst month uh, for new listings for whatever reason. I honestly have no idea. But anyways. So this is this is the story. If you look at months of inventory on a national basis as well, I think it's around in the low fours, 4.4. It's basically back to pretty much what it was pre-pandemic. So think about the national housing market from an inventory level perspective, back to levels last seen during the pan- pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic was a fairly strong housing market. So we're not oversupplied. We just have extremely weak demand. I still think that there's going to be more listings coming in the traditional spring selling markets that's going to be the next that's going to be the next test so if you want to figure out the next direction for the housing market are we bottoming out are we getting another leg down you're not really going to know until the spring market when the inventory comes and that's going to test the level of demand that's out there uh, i'm skeptical that the level of demand is going to be able to meet the level of listings that are coming to market but that's that's your next test and like i said house prices on a national basis down 16 percent that certainly matters for, for the big banks there. Keith, I don't know if you have any comments. Yeah, you know, what I find interesting, because, you know, we, we've been talking about, you know, the variable rate mortgage story for a while. And, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to see, you know, some of the, the data coming in. It, it is definitely having, a, you know, a negative effect on a lot of people. And then we have the anecdotal stories with it. You know, we, we all know if it's not yourself, it, it's friends or family that are being hit with it. But but now I'm starting to see stories uh, pop up about people who are now fearful because they have to renew their fixed rate mortgage, which is coming up now in the next six months or so. And you're 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 starting to see the same, you know, concern, you know, from these people. So one story I just saw in one of the news lines uh, yesterday. Uh, this lady, she said uh, she won't be able to afford home payments by the time the mortgage renewal comes up in March. 
she said, we don't stand a chance. So we're, we're, we're packing right now to, to sell our house and trade down or whatever they're going to do. And it's, it's really heartbreaking. And um, I think someone else, I don't know if someone shared with me this yesterday as well, or maybe it's one of you guys that uh, I think 50% of Canadians are now, what was it? They're, they're concerned about food price or they can't afford the groceries something in, in that line. I'm always a little so bit I, skeptical of those surveys, but I think the point is, is still valid, Keith, which is the, the financial stress is <clears throat> undoubtedly building. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so, I mean, so, you know, th- this was leading into, you know, you talk about housing and the Bank of Canada, of course. And now, you know, the next Bank of Canada meeting is coming in January. And uh, markets right now are pricing in that they're not fully convinced to be a, a rate hike. Whereas now we're getting this tug of war. And, and by the way, the Bank of Canada now, I have no idea what those guys are going to do. Uh, they're, 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 you know, they're, they are, you know, flipping and flopping, you know, all, all over the wharf. So it's hard to tell which direction they're going to go. They want to sound hawkish, uh, but markets right now are suggesting they won't be. And, uh, but I think now they, they literally are at that point where if they do much more, it, it is going to create, um, you know, a lot of pressure on on a lot of Canadians, but in reality, that's what they want. Because the only way you can crush demand is by, you know, crushing people's spirits so that they they're losing their jobs and stuff like that. Like we're, we're in a very precarious financial moment right now, and financially, we'll we'll see what uh, what the Bank of Canada does. And he was speaking this week, wasn't he? When, yeah, was I'm going to rich. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna sure. get to that in a sec. Just oh, quickly sorry, on the ahead. quickly on the housing front. Yeah, because we have some comments from so I think it was one of the deputy governors last week came out and chatted. Uh she had some interesting comments, which I'll touch on. And Rich, you watched Tiff Macklem's most recent press conference. Uh, I think it was yesterday. So we'll comment on that in a second. But uh quick other update as well. Just on the housing front, I know there's been a lot of people, especially in the mortgage industry, that have been waiting, watching OSFI. So OSFI is the Canadian banking regulator. Every single year, I think on December 15th, they come out and they update sort of their um, their sort of uh, mortgage stress test, basically. And so there was a lot of like sort of hopes in the industry that, oh, you know, we've got a 14, 15 year high in, in interest rates or mortgage rates. What's the point of having this 2% buffer now? You know, they need to lower it. Housing's getting crushed, et cetera, et cetera. So there was discussions about OSFI coming out and altering that. Now they came out today and said, nope, we're we're leaving it as is. Uh, this came, this followed their their comments last week, which basically felt that they that it was a, you know, they didn't want to speculate on interest rates. And so they basically said, you know what, we're leaving it as is. Now, what was interesting was in the OSFI's release is they said that we will launch a full review of the B20 mortgage underwriting standards in January. And they said, quote, we expect to leave the minimum qualifying rate at its current rate, pending the outcome of the review. Although the economic environment could result in a more immediate change. The what does that mean? Environment could re- <laughs> I mean, the way I'm interpreting that is we're going to leave it as is. We're going out going to do this full review. But if the economic environment, you know, takes a crap, we're going to have to make an immediate. I mean, it's, it's really like if you're a policymaker, it's the the, the, the pro cyclicality of, of your policy decisions. Right. So it's like you typically don't want to like tighten lending standards into a downturn. Like typically you're sort of like, you know, you're supposed to be applying the brakes as the market starts to heat up and you're supposed to be sort of letting off the brakes and applying the accelerator a bit as, as you head into a downturn, you don't want to exacerbate, you know, a, a financial crisis, for example, but like these guys are never, <laughs> these guys are not leading indicators, right? Like the, the same as the bank account, you could have hiked rates, you know, 12 months ago. So I'm just looking at that and saying OSFI, I think, probably doesn't want to maybe interfere with the Bank of Canada's job, which is they're tr- clearly trying to curb demand. The last thing I think OSFI probably wants to do is, okay, let's remove the mortgage stress test and make it easier for people to, to get mortgages and sort of re-inflate re, you know, re the housing market. 
Yeah, talk about closing the barn doors when the, the, the horses are gone, right? I mean, they should have been, I mean, people have been talking about, us included, have been talking about how house prices are inflated relative to incomes and relative to rent in Canada for, I mean, I've been writing about it for two years. Um, there's been smarter people who are ahead of that game even before that. So the fact that they're doing this now is just a little bit embarrassing, but I think it's also good. I think, I mean, it's important they're sharing with us. I think I wonder how, I mean, wonder if they have the, you know, the sort of the, the stones to like carry through and maybe who knows, maybe they shouldn't, you know, maybe they should wait. Um, Cause in, in, in a sense, I mean, isn't the, aren't the rate hikes sort of doing some of the work for them? I mean, if you're going to get like a, so let's just say, I mean, there's hardly almost anyone going to get variable mortgages today, but if you're going to get a variable mortgage, I mean, you have to basically get, you have to qualify at like almost like 8%. Wow. So it's like, they're going to give you a loan based on the assumption that you're borrowing at eight when you're really borrowing at like, say like six. So it's like people's purchasing power is just getting like annihilated. Right. So, and and that's ultimately feeding through into the housing market because you're, you're making a bid on a, on a house and you're saying, well, you're asking, you know, 1.5 mil, but can't get approved for more than one three. And this is like multiplied across the market. And so naturally prices are obviously coming down as we've highlighted. So yeah, I, I think the the rate hikes and the and the mortgage stress test, the two percent on top of fourteen year highs in rates, is just exacerbating, you know, what people can borrow, and, and it's exacerbating. I think it's exacerbating the downturn. Now, again, is that what policymakers truly want? I think that's probably what's needed to bring inflation down. But it's that it's that tricky game of like, okay, well, when do you when do you call it quits? I mean, I've, I don't know because I think I think it'll be interesting. I mean, like. That's why we'll, we'll let's maybe what I can address some of the comments from Tiff Macklin then. Like, I think, yeah, that's yeah, let's jump into it. it. So, Tiff, Tiff Macklin, just to, to summarize yeah. here, guys, he was in uh, BC. He didn't, he didn't call me actually. It's a little bit disappointing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Must have lost the invite in the mail. Um, but yeah, he was in BC and he gave a speech to, I think, the BC Business Bureau or something. But, anyways, Rich, take it away. Yeah. So um, full disclosure, I usually only listen to the, I try not to listen to the prepared statements. I find it much more enlightening and interesting to listen to the question period and the commentary afterwards. So, you know, Susumi, um, you're welcome to read the, all of this stuff, by the way, just for people who don't know, um, every major statement or press release by any major central bank is always either released on the website or on Twitter or whatever it is. So if you're interested, you can read it. Um, there's it's so, but what I find, so what, the reason I, I like to listen to sort of the, the, the post speech, um, presser is they field questions from journalists. Some journalists are better than others. A lot of the time there's like a theme that's like going running through all of the questions. Um, and you know, in, in this case, I mean, one of the, so, and then that's what I felt that what was happening yesterday or the day before, whatever it was. And I think the, the for me was a theme was given that inflation is starting to roll over. I mean, you know, it hasn't necessarily happened at the global level, but it certainly happened in the U.S., which we'll get to in a, in a few minutes. In Canada, it is as well. You know, the the, the questions that I, that I felt what that each of the reporters was harping on was, you know, basically when are we when are you going to cut rates? <laughs> you know, what when are you going to cr- uh, cry uncle and reverse course? Um, on your policy decisions. And people, the, the reporters approached that uh, in different ways. One, they, they, they talked about the stresses that people were dealing with with respect to the housing. Another person uh, cited the yield curve inversion being at like a 30 or 40 year uh, low. Another um, discussed the fact that indeed inflation was going lower. And I think in each instance, uh, Tiff Macklin parried any kind of suggestion that he was going to cut rates. Now, there's two things you need, you need to know about that. Number one is that they're never going to, you know, put themselves in a corner and they, do, they shouldn't anyway. So it, it's in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a really kind of um, an expose in being a, a politician and just saying lots of words without saying anything, which is, I guess, what I'm doing right now, too. But also, it, I think what he really was suggesting was that these any rate cuts that might be priced into the futures market um, I think should be discounted. And I think that they're going to hold rates here high for longer than anything anybody expects. And this relates, I think, what's going on in the US, which we'll get to later. But that was sort of my takeaway. Everybody wants to know when they're cutting and it ain't going to happen. 
Keith? It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You say, you know, they, they don't want to paint themselves into a corner, but that's exactly what they go from one <laughs> corner to the next. Because was it in 2020, they said, hey, we, we are not going to raise rates till, you know, the year, you know, 2049 or something like that. And now here they are, they say, we're never going to cut rates again. You know, I'm just being a bit dramatic, of course. Have you seen that? Have you seen that video? I was literally woke up this morning, scrolling on my phone. And uh, again, whatever, does, I don't care what your political views, love him, hate him, doesn't matter. But there was, it was a video from Pierre Polyev, when, and it was from June, I think of June of 2020. And he was asking Tiff Macklem, um, you know, grilling him saying, what happens to Canadians when interest, ri- interest rates rise by 2%? And Tiff was like livid. He was, you could so upset, like the look on his face. He's like, that's entirely hypothetical. And of course, you know, if you've been following, we're now up 400 basis points. So 4%, not 2%. So man, what a incredible policy blunder. I know we've chatted about this numerous times, so we don't need to sort of continue to beat the dead horse here, but. But it's interesting because yesterday during, during, during Powell's, uh, presser, somebody gave him a sort of a similar type of scenario and he responded the same way he said you know we you know we don't deal in hypotheticals you know we're just dealing with what they have now so of course you know we have that but i know we we've said this before and i just want to reiterate this and it's not an eye roll or anything it's just so plain and 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 stupid and easy to understand the world went through a 40-year period with rates always declining. Everyone always made money on, on that trade. Then we went for a decade with rates never rising. So the expectations are built in there. And everyone's expectation for the future, and I got a great story to tell you about that from a, from a meeting I had this this week. Uh, it remind me to, to chime in on that because I don't want to forget. But the future is going to look extremely different than the past. And I, I we can we got to keep reminding everyone of that because it's going to be incredibly different. So if you continue to think markets are going to behave and central bankers will act, well, central bankers will act like they have in the past, but they're, you know, they're going down this road that they don't know what to do. Actually, it was a great line for the ECB this morning. Um do you guys want to talk about the ECB real quick? Go for it. You could you can comment on Christine Lagarde. I know you love her. <laughs> oh yeah. So this morning, <laughs> ECB guy he says uh, QT or quantitative uh, tightening is a new experience for us. You know that was the response, and I'm thinking, oh my god, of course it is. Every single person on that committee, their entire career has been with zero and negative rates and, and so forth. And but he basically said, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen with this outcome. But we'll go more to the ECB in a second. But that's my point. I think so that the Canadians, the Americans, and everyone at, at the central bank level, like they they don't have a crystal ball. They have to sound confident in everything. But uh so whatever, but whatever they're telling us this week. You know, it's it's not etched in stone because I do think you know the economy is going to have a pretty dramatic turn coming up in. I have a general question question for you is, is maybe from the portfolio side, but how do you look at like the whole like passive investing idea, right? Like you know, you, okay, you just you just buy the spy, right? You just buy the S and P five hundred, you buy the ETF, and you just keep adding cash every month, and you get your what ten percent a year. In perpetuity, how do you it, view that strategy moving forward in this environment? Yeah, well, so, so first of all, it depends on what your age is, how close you are to retirement, and how much money you have in in that market. If you're young and you're putting in like a hundred bucks a month, and you know you're you know it, it doesn't matter to you what the market movements are, but we're likely going to see swings in like in the S P five hundred or any other market. Like we could see annual swings of thirty to fifty percent, you know, like going up thirty, down twenty, and, and something like that. So that is not a strategy we would suggest for anyone, because the older you are, the more we're always more sensitive to losses than we are to gains. And then the older you are, the closer you are when you you know what I don't want to work anymore. I just want to live off my passive income, and that's it. And uh, all of a sudden you're down 31 year. And then that, that's, that's just a hard, that, that's a hard boat to row as, you know, as, as they'd say. The, vol- yeah, the, the volatility. 
Yeah, it, it's it's enormous, right? It's enormous. So I mean, I mean, the, the classic portfolio management, you know, objective is to produce higher returns with lower risk, you know, than, than the broad market. There's lots of ways to do it. I, I know lots of people are having success with that, but I, I wouldn't be an all equity guy. I mean, you're you're living and dying by the sword with that one. The other thing is that we we have like we all have short memories, and I think you know from the, what we've seen from the last. I'm looking at it now. You know, if, if you look at the chart and you can see from 2010 to 2021, December 2021, it was just like a straight line in one direction, and that's happened before in the 19 late 1990s. That happened to a lesser degree. It happened in the late uh, noughts or noughties or whatever in 2000s. But there are times where the equity market in real terms does not do well and is flat for years so from 1960 to 1980 i'm just doing you know the s p divided by you know inflation or cpi some kind of real return it was actually negative for for large large chunks of time and so it's just it yes you obviously need to be exposed to equities for you know several you know to get, get some of that growth if you get it etc or if bonds aren't going your way but there are times in history that you just do not make money on equities and so that's why you do have to be careful and i think you need it's about what you described steve is trying to take advantage of beta which is what people call it which is maybe a little bit too technical for the podcast but it's definitely we're in an alpha world now which is you need to be much more selective on sectors and companies and currencies and countries i think you know it's funny so though is Sorry, yeah, just check out Go Rich. Ahead, just, Rich, check out the periods 1966 to 82. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, and just if you can do the measurement, like the percentage return up and then the drawdown. Oh, yeah. The, there's can, some, are you able to do that on your, on yeah, your screen? Well, sure. Yeah, well, and, and that's a period yeah. with rising rates, you know, when the right. world was, you know, a bit of a shit show and, and everything. And that that's what we're going back to. I agree. But there's no one around today that was... Well, except for some old guys, but, um, you know, no one in the industry today, you know, experienced that before. And um, I, I just think it's going to be, it's going to be turning a lot of people upside down. You know, just to chime in there, I know you guys are like, you know, I always respect your guys' views on like financial markets. Obviously, I think we have a good depth of, of, of sort of insights here, right? We all come from slightly different backgrounds. Um, you know, I find it interesting though, when I hear like, you know, guys yourself, Rich, come out and say, Hey, you know, you're going to have to be selective, you know, the idea of sort of just like long only passive, what worked for the last 10, 15, 20 years might not work for the next 10. And so like the one thing I'll say, if you're going to apply this to the Canadian housing market for a lot of our listeners, the one thing that immediately for me comes to mind is in the pre-sale market. So the way that most, a lot of the real estate investors in Canada have made boatloads, um, like boatloads of money over the last 10, 15 years is through the pre-sale market. So you put down 10, 15, 20% deposit, and you basically, you're basically buying a futures contract in three years, the developer delivers you a product. And during those three years, the market just goes up, you know, 10% a year, and you know you collect your you collect your bag of cash at the door and today in this environment now like developers are typically charging 10 15 20 percent above resale prices in order for you to sort of lock in and buy this futures contract so you're paying a huge premium with the expectation that well the markets of course the market's just going to go up when you're done when you're done construction and i think well what if the market's flat to down in three, four, five years, maybe we go through a 10 year period of low to no growth. So I think those are the people that, that have been applying those strategies for 10, 15 years. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting. You know, it sort of th- reminds me of, um, so first of all, I'll go back to, I, I had a meeting this week. So I, I sit on a, uh, an investment finance committee for a, for a nonprofit. So it's not related to IceCap. And um, so I mean, we, we have an advisor that that's managing the, the, the big pool of money and it's a lot of money, like it, it's, it's significant. And um, so this is my first time on, on the committee for, for when the advisor comes in, he comes in once a year. And I, I think he's used to, Hey, it's a bit of a snoozy group and you know, he knows more than everyone else. And he shows up this year, or I show up this year, and all of a sudden, 
you know, I'm listening to, I'm just sitting there and, you know, he's droning on for 30 minutes and, and all of a sudden, you know, any questions? And I said, well, I have a few, of course. Right. And, uh, I was, <laughs> and I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to be one of, one of those gotcha moments or anything, but you know, you have a fiduciary duty, duty all the time. So if anyone's on these kind of committees, you, you understand that, you know what, what I mean. Um, but the, the interesting, like one of the questions was, I had form, uh, I had a bunch of them. So what, I just want to hear the answers and the responses. So for example, one was, uh, you know, we talked about how 2020 and 21, 22 were very volatile years, everything. And I said, well, what changes did you make during that period? And of course, the response is none because you can never anticipate anything moving. And I'm like, well, that's not really true, but okay, fair enough. And uh, then the other, then you start talking about there's a recession coming next year. And I said, well, you know, because there's a lot of money in bank stocks, because I want to talk about that, you know, for Canadians. And I said, you know, you are calling for a recession next year. That could have an effect on banks' earnings and, you know, stuff like that. I said, will you be making any changes in anticipation of that? And the answer is, no, like, why would you ever sell, you know, your Canadian bank stock? So which then sort of leads me into the whole, you know, then he whipped out an article. I'm, you know, they always, an advisor will always keep an article in their binder. They have a whole bunch of them there. So depending on the situation in the meeting, when all of a sudden you need like a third party to confirm something that you don't want to do, you, you whip this thing out. And this is what the guy was able to do. I know all the tricks. I know what they do. Uh, and it was an article from the Globe and Mail, you know, it was champion Canadian bank stocks over 30 years or something like that. And the whole conclusion was that you would, A, you would never, ever sell your bank stocks. That's all you should buy, to which I would say, well, why don't you have more then, right? You're telling me you can never have enough of these things because there are never any risk. But it goes back to, again, like we just talked about 1966 to 82 in, in that period. Um, and, and some of you might know of just from from reading but from 69 in in the late 60s early 70s they had this investment theme called the nifty 50 Have you guys read about that before yeah is this from yeah. uh howard marx's most recent letter uh maybe Continue. i know Continue. he talks about that stuff yeah and um so steve might have seen a movie before in the nifty 50 maybe <laughs> Rich maybe read about it, but it's it goes back to these. We we get these periods, and the same thing in the in the late nineties with tech stocks, for example. You know, you get these periods where a theme is created, and it move along, and then it's believed, you know, by by everyone. But back then, with that Nifty Fifty, basically, you know, buying shares of Coca Cola and IBM and and stuff like that, and you know, you buy good solid companies that pay dividends. You never have to worry about anything else. But, um, you know, so from, you know, late 60s to the early 70s, you know, they, these stocks, some of them were down 50, 70, 80, 90%. And that's my point, like coming back to the, this misconception of that Canadian bank stocks are unbeatable at all times. You know, just as, you know, you see, uh, Rich, when you use the, the football analogy, you know, the Germans lost this time and. Well, the English never win, of course, but <laughs> Come there, on, there's, so mean. Uh, I know, I know. Yeah. It wasn't their fault, right? It was the referee, but Canadians have been lulled asleep for a very long period with a, a lot of success from Canadian stocks, specifically in the financial sector. And I'm not saying this to mean, Hey, run out and sell them. And cause you got to control your risk exposure and things like that. But we've never seen an economy that's been synchronized from coast to coast with a crisis in the housing market. And we're not there yet, but we're close to getting to that point. And if we do, then we'll realize very quickly that, you know, this, this belief that you're safe and sound every night, uh, it, it's not true. And that's the whole point with financial history. I mean, it's awesome. You got all these great stories with it and analogies and old guys, you know, can say, well, back when I was young, we did this and that. But again, it's our concern that going forward, we're in this period where, you know, debt has to be rolled over everywhere. We've gone from zero rates now up to four or five percent. Uh, it's, it's likely everyone's creating a recession and the leverage behind housing market was just borne by the banks and so forth. I think it's going to be an interesting year in, in 23.
we're excited by it, but I think some people who are not, you know, excited by it, uh, you know, they could get blindsided, which I think this guy will, by the way, the guy that was, uh, when he left, well, I don't like- they're lucky yeah. to have you, Keith. I was going to say that there's a different angle, just like for people who are interested in sort of the more fundamental view of that banks versus everything else. Um, and it's a similar kind of thing what's happening in the US right now with the tech, which is like, you know, for a long time, banks have over earned and you over earn by how do banks make money? They obviously make money on your outrageous fees that Canadians are charged to do basic things. They're, they over earn because they're extremely, they're not productive and there's no competition, but they also over earn because they issue incredible amount of mortgages. <clears throat> and then they either, they do that, they get fees or they get the net interest margin or whatever, however you want to do it. And once that starts to pull back, as we know, the mortgage lending is now starting to reverse and there's a lot less mortgage lending. That means there's less churn and there's less opportunity to make those ridiculous fees. Um, and so that's what's happened also in the U.S. So in the U.S., the, the tech sector in America has over-earned. I, we call this saying over-earned because your profit margins are much, much higher than average or your earnings per share is, has like, gone exponential relative to, again, some kind of long-term and sort of normalized business cycle number. And, and once that starts to come off, when your profit margins have peaked and are starting to roll over, or people have moved away from buying all kinds of gadgets to moving to, into services, and you start to, you start to revert, like sort of revert to that mean, you get a correlate, like a, well, what happens in, I mean, that's happened in many different cycles and many different sectors, you sort of get a, the underperformance starts to come through. And just so, just to corroborate Keith's point about the banks, banks relative to the rest of the equity market in Canada is at an all-time high. <laughs> so you've gone from an all-time low in 1986 or seven, um, and in relative performance terms, and we'll share the chart on YouTube, it's now all the way at an all-time high relative to the rest of the market. And so, you know, and these, I'm not saying that these mean reversions are perfect, but it's that's definitely something that I, I know I look at. I'm sure Keith looks at it too, and it, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. So just to uh, comment there, Keith, this is this is from Howard Marks' letter he actually posted a couple of days ago. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Howard Marks, he's written a couple of books. Uh, he's a distressed um, distressed credit manager. Anyways, he's a really smart guy, one of my favorite writers. Uh, but he wrote, uh, so when he's like, when I got into the investment management industry in 1969, um, there was the thing called again the Nifty Fifty, and the Nifty Fifty compromise uh, comprised the stocks of companies that were considered the best and fastest growing, so good that nothing bad could ever happen to them. For these stocks, everyone was sure that there was no price too high. But he says if you bought the Nifty Fifty in 1969 when he started uh, and held them until 1974, so five years, you were sitting on losses of more than 90 percent. And that, that's a, that's a five-year period. So uh, that's from uh, Howard Marks. There, highly encourage you. His letters are for his letters are free. I think he puts one out every couple months. But uh, so there you have it. Gone. <laughs> <laughs> I love that expression. Do you know another good one? And I know uh, my friend Zach over who, who listens to the show, Zach Howard. Uh, he'll know the answer to this one. So if I, I'll, I'll say another expression. You guys tell me if you know what it means. It's a good day on close. No idea. No, no idea. You guys. Okay, let's continue. I don't want to give it away, but um, <coughs> moving on. So, yeah, moving on. It's sort of in with. Here's another thing to think about for next year. It ties in with you know the Bank of Canada and everything. And um, so this coming year, a lot of labors will have a lot of unions, labor unions will have their contracts coming up for negotiation, and. You know, they will be offered two, three, four percent, something like that. And they're going to be livid. They're going to be absolutely going through the roof with those kind of insulting offers. And because they're going to say, hey, you know, inflation is eight, nine, 10 percent and all that. So the, the, the probability of not only Canada, but the rest of the world um, that recognizes unions uh, having labor strikes this coming year, it, it's it's going to happen. Like, I, it's already I was, happening in the UK. It's happening in the, in the UK. UK. Yeah. There's the NH- Sorry to interrupt you, but the NHS, which is the National Health Services, the Postal Service, the trains, the tube, we're having like three or four weeks of all the major unions in the UK are about to go on strike. 
Now, to be fair, I've been in uh, London maybe 10 or 12 times over my life. And every single time, it seemed like the two guys were on strike for something. So I'm not quite sure. Okay, if that's that. not I, wrong. I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think the Brits are, you know, they won't even flinch at that. They're used to it. But uh, I mean, anyway, but jokes aside, it, it's coming. And as little as like, for example, I know it's just one sign up in one of the universities I walked through uh, this week. And, uh, you know, like, and I get a little, uh, little, little miffed when the, the, the university professors go on strike. And uh, my sister lives in that world, by the way. So, um, you know, you, you hear bits and bits about it. But that has a huge impact on kids that are in school and they're, you know, being able to graduate and, and things like that. But anyway, that that is coming. And I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, sound one way or another for, you know, any of our listeners that are, that are involved with this coming up. But next year is going to be, I think, the year from from hell for uh everyone negotiating on both sides because no one's going to be happy with whatever the result is and you know we're going to have um it's going to affect us anyway uh but keith yeah cpi but, is falling what the hell are these guys doing i know no that's pay what raises. management CPI is falling yeah management will use so if you're in management you say to me hey it's coming down and i'll say well pay me for what i just lost last year do you know what i mean right. like it's it's something but we've and, talked about uh, this before. The labor market is a lagging indicator, so which is why you have to be dangerous when you're like we've. This, I'm sure we've mentioned this many, many times. But just people who haven't, we're just hearing it first time. Labor markets and in general are lagging indicators. So you have, um, you know, the, the, it's like, um, and so you, you we're seeing even though the labor market is strong and we're seeing wage growth come up, we're seeing a lot of the economy, as as Steve pointed out, the CPI is starting to roll over. We talked about the ISM diffusion index drink um that's that's rolling over um you know whether it's money supply which we'll get into later there's lots of other indicators that are starting to go negative and yet wage growth is actually still on the march in the u.s it's less so in canada because of immigration and stuff so, like that but it is i, I think that next ties into the fed conversation no, i want rich can you can you quickly unpack us the u.s cpi data yeah just sure. very, very briefly so just because i think it kind of sets up the fed here right which is like sure We've been talking about on the show for a while, which is, listen, guys, inflation is coming down. I know it's really upsetting for people to hear that, uh, that have a very dogmatic view of the world. But like inflation on a rate of change basis is declining. Uh, and, and so, Rich, maybe walk us through those headlines quickly. Yeah, sure. So um, inflation in the U.S. is 7.1. It came in, I think, 0.2 less than what was expected by the analyst estimates or the aggregation of all of the market's estimates. So that's down, you know, so it's, we're, we peaked, you know, and in, in sort of the, we peaked around 9, 9%, and then we're at 7.1. Headline, sorry, so that was headline 7.1. Core fell to 6.0. You know, we've talked a lot about um, shelter. Shelter continues to hold up in the U.S., although it, it again, sort of slowed. I think one, I won't go through all of the numbers like we do with Canada. You guys can look it up on your own. But one, a couple of key, key points was core X shelter fell to 5.2%. So that's really, really coming off. Things that stood out for me were that energy was the energy. That was the, the real reason, in my view, that you've had a significant decline. So if you look at the actual press release, so they, they do this again, it's available to anyone. It's really easy to sort of find online. I'm trying to dig it up right now. Sorry, I had it in a second ago. And you can see that, you know, food still went up month on month. Um, and, you know, those like commodities fell, but and then services went up on month on month. But really what, what the big drag was from energy and then used cars and trucks. And there's a chart that's going online. Everybody loves this. The Mannheim and the used cars and trucks are starting to come down significantly. Everybody's quite obsessed with this. The it's thing down I like just, 14%, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's down a lot. But the thing is, I would just suggest to everyone, and we've been talking about this a lot, it's not just about those individual components. It's about the breadth. So things to look at and that are not coming, that are not rolling over yet are things like the trimmed mean CPI, the median CPI from the Cleveland Fed. There's something called the sticky CPI from the Atlanta Federal Reserve. And all these, what they try, the reason all these different Federal Reserve branches come up with their own CPI indicators because they, they secretly all compete with one another, I'm sure. But really, it's because they're trying to find out the central tendency. What is the sort of, when you take away the volatile items, what is happening to prices? And what we're seeing is, although we're seeing a lot of these volatile items come off significantly, 
the the tendency is still high and so that's the that's where i would just and then we're going to get into the fed and why the fed might be hawkish still etc cetera, etc cetera. but you all know, these, something that i all yeah, these nerds ahead, just having a field day over there eh? Creating all, their, <laughs> all their own I indexes mean, I'm, I'm grateful for it but like you know the median cpi is still is 6.98 so seven percent you know, you could say, well, it stopped rising, but it's still very, very high. Remember the U.S. targets around, you know, around 2% or just under 2%. So that's still well above target. And I think it's going to take at least a few years for that number to come down. And you but noted keep, that shelter was uh, still yeah. sticky. So that's so the thing. Talk- it's like, I, I, I mean, anyone that you talk to in the real estate industry in the U.S., I mean, John Burns Consulting is probably one of the best ones out there is like, they're all noting uh, weakness in the housing market and weakness in rents now as well. So, but that that won't show up in this this lagging of right. of indicators uh, at, at the Fed. So, so I mean, it's it's tough, right? Because the shelter is such a large component of the core CPI basket. It's forty one point six in the U.S. I think it's thirty nine point eight in Canada. Whatever it is, it's it's around forty. Let's just say, and yes, it it does roll over slowly. Um, you know, if you if you overlap, you know, if you overlay, excuse me, house prices on the shelter component, you can see what's coming, but we're still not there yet. Um, and also the other thing is, I would argue, I would submit to you that if the labor market in the U.S. is really, really strong and people have some wage growth coming through, you know, they can absorb rent increases at a, at a much faster pace than they might have in a different cycle. And so that's why I would be very care- I would be I'm skeptical about people who think, oh, the U.S. housing market is going to collapse 20% year on year. And so that's what's going to happen to the sheltering component. I will, I will see. Well, obviously, we'll keep people posted. Stay tuned. But I'm, I'm quite skeptical about that. But Keith, how does that relate to the, the Federal Reserve and, and, and Jerome Powell's comments? And Is that what you talked about on your date? <laughs> no, it wasn't a date. Lunch date. <laughs> no. Oh man, you guys are so mean. I'm never telling you guys anything ever again. <laughs> She's looking at Rich's ass and said, "You had me on the diffusion index." Oh, oh boy. so embarrassing. I know it really is, Rich, but it's it's fun though. It's good. And um, one thing, so the reason we talk about the inflation data all the time, just sort of you know reset everything here. Market participants look at that to help guide us towards what we expect our central bank is going to do. That's what we want to figure out. And because of all the inflation data now, where CPI, PPI, or you know, ISM prices paid, all, all the all these, you know, great, great data points, they're all slowing, right? They're all telling us it's very clear that the rate the speed at which prices are increasing is slowing, right? They're still rising, but not as fast as, as they used to. So the, so the rate of change, right? And um, I suspect, by the way, like, for example, using the CPI data for the Americans, you know, headline, I th- we're at seven now, 7.3, I think it is. 7.1, you know, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we could be down by five in by February, March. I mean, no I think way. that's how fast they can come no down. Way. Let, let me finish though with with the uh, train of thought. Um, with that, with the American CPI number that came out last week, it was not only was it less than the previous month that was expected, but it was less than what estimates were. And so when that happened, markets immediately say, "Oh wow, you know the Fed they sound a, a bit dovish two weeks ago. Uh, maybe they're going to either just do a twenty five basis point hike." Or they'll get, you know, they're going to say, hey, we're done, we're over. So when the CPI number came out, the US dollar, you know, just got taken to the backyard, like, it, and it was risk on, like, it was full on fun if you were in it, you invested for risk on markets. And uh, which brings us to the Fed meeting that we had yesterday. And uh, you guys remember that I think it was last show, the one before, you know, I, I was a bit disappointed. I said, hey, I don't know what the Fed is doing here. Like they came right. out really dovish and it just didn't make sense. Um, you know, if everyone around the world, you know, that I chat with a couple of days afterwards, you know, they all said, oh, apparently one of the PE firms in, in New York, they actually ran into problems. So that's why he had to sound dovish to give them a couple of days to regroup and everything. So the, the Fed that came out yesterday, so the Jerome Powell, the, uh, the the notes from the meeting as well as the presser, he did a 180 yesterday. 
it was completely different than what he was two weeks prior. And this is a bit annoying for investment managers because you want consistency from your central bank. Bank of Canada, are you listening? Hello, McFly. McFly. Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, can you hear me? Be consistent, dude. Uh, but the Fed that came out yesterday was exactly the Fed that we expect to happen. And what that Fed was, was incredibly hawkish. And so some of the main main quotes, so but the point is the CPI data, it didn't even it just bounced off them, right? It it didn't mean anything to them. Instead, because Rich made a really good point, is that the main thing that he talked about was the labor market. So you can't have a weak, a weak economy with less demand if your labor market is still incredibly strong. So it can be strong by more people are coming in looking for work, or there's uh, wages are going up because their employees are competing or they're paying people to stay and, and stuff like that. But these are some of the quotes that, that he said. Uh, he said, the labor market remains very tight. And that's something that, you know, we would say in a podcast, but for the, for, um, for Jerome Powell to say that again, late, the labor market remains very tight. That's central bank code for saying, we ain't stopping raising rates yet. You think we're getting dovish here? That's not happening at all. Uh, he also used the words, he said, demand is substantially greater than supply. Again, that's incredibly hawkish. Uh, the risk to inflation are elevated to the upside. I mean, like, holy smokes, this is completely different. So, Rich, if you went another date with, with this this lady oh, you're out with earlier and she's different next week, like, oh, man, you're like Powell, right? That's what you can say to her. Um, he also said, um, what am I going to I can't read my notes. Well, he said a lot of things. Yeah, he did. Uh, we still have a long ways to go. Um with, we're not going to have a sustained period of, you say we're not even close to having a sustained period of below average trend growth yet. So it, again, we're in this period where the Fed is going to be hawkish, which brings us to today. And and again, like everything, like the whole, the only thing green on my screen right now, uh, besides the 10 year is, is the dollar index. Like it's, it's up pretty strong, yep. but uh, <clears throat> yesterday the Fed reset and it, it was very significant which is which is going to roll into again i think we're going to get into this period where inflation data is going to continue to get soft and we'll continue going you know going back and forth with what is the fed going to do but he now reset expectations to really say don't worry about headline inflation worry about you know wage growth and, and stuff like that like it was pretty significant what he said and Keith, I know you are, you know, you're a big follower as well. Like we've just had such a, such a busy week here with all these central banks, but you know, the, the economic fantasy land there in Europe, the ECB was out today as well. So you had a hawkish fed, you had the ECB out today. I don't know if you want to chime in on, on the ECB and, and some of the commentary over there. Yeah. The ECB was very interesting. Cause remember their, their rate is, is about half of what, where the Americans are right now. And, uh, their statement today in the presser, it was probably the most hawkish I've heard any central bank for a long time. The ECB. They, oh my God. They were like, they came out with, with the guns a blazing. It wasn't, yeah, we're going to, we, we, we're going to raise rates into the futures. Like they basically said, uh, you know, these are my words, but you'll find the same ones. You know, uh, we're going to keep raising 50 basis points uh, for a long time. Basically, that's what they said. <laughs> you know, they're they're not going to stop hiking. They're going to do quantitative tightening as well. That's what they're moving towards. And when they were so, what was really interesting with 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 the ECB presser this morning, as they were talking, and it was quite obvious they were very hawkish with it. So the euro started to increase rapidly. At the same time, the dollar was rising rapidly versus all the other markets. And I'm watching this, and I'm, I'm in a chat room with with some some other friends, and uh, I say, guys, either the whole market's going to turn now and catch up to the euro, or the euro's just going to roll over and catch up to the rest of the market, which is what's happened here right now. But uh, that's what the the Europeans did. I got a quick commentary actually. Just so this is from uh, ECB President Christine Lagarde. So she says, "Quote: Anybody who thinks this is a pivot for the ECB is wrong." 
We're not pivoting. We're not wavering. We are showing determination and resilience in continuing a journey where we have, if you could, if you compare with the Fed, we have more ground to cover. We have longer to go. We are not slowing down. We're in for the long game. Yeah. Was it Journey or Aerosmith? I get them mixed up sometimes. <laughs> Jeez. Tough, dun, dun. Tough day. I know. I know. Get the drama but that, Yeah. But that's what they did. So here's something very interesting. So there's a couple of things here, observations. One, they're going to hike rates aggressively into an infinity. They're doing quantitative tightening. And their expectation for economic growth next year is that they might get a small recession, like the smallest one that may happen. And that's, <laughs> that's it. So they're, I mean, they're doing everything that's textbook wrong. So they're actually going to create a more severe recession. That, that's what I would suspect. Um, and then I learned a little tidbit on, on Twitter, of course, that's where you learn everything these days. So one of the former, um, what do you call If you're on the ECB council, what are you called? I don't know. Is it a, in Canada, you're a governor and stuff like that. Rich member. Oh, I, I, I want to say governor, but I don't know now. Maybe they get like, since, like fantasy character names, like Peter Pan and stuff like that. Maybe. <laughs> Come on. That would be that. Maybe that's what they should do. Uh, you're on a roll anyway, today, what, Keith. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I think I'm pretty good. And uh, but one of the guys, he actually shared something that I had no idea. And this is again why I call it the European economic fantasy land. Um, did you know? So the ECB, they state their uh, inflation forecast four times a year, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's quarterly quarterly review. Absolutely. They alternate each quarter. So the first and I think it's a first and third quarter. That number comes from the ECP, ECB governing council. I just remember what it is. The other two quarters, it's actually an aggregate from the 19 central banks that make up the Eurozone. Why is that bad? Sorry. These, these forecasts are always wrong anyways and the u.s by the way they're wrong in the u.s as well and they're wrong in canada all central bankers are terrible at forecasting inflation correct but at least you have the same group doing it all the time <laughs> so the, the, the same group is getting it wrong is better than different groups getting it wrong okay <laughs> well you want it's like if you have your hockey team steve and like every second night you had a different team going out but you were in the same jerseys again it just caught me by by saying yeah that is a bit weird yeah, it's 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 so, a lot weird. You know, just just for our listeners here, Keith, like people that maybe don't follow every word that a central bank puts out there and isn't going back, you know, fifty or hundred years to figure out how these guys operate. How much of this commentary from the ECB do you put into like sort of moral suasion or forward guidance, which is you have to talk a big game? in order to sort of get markets to, to act the way that you want them to, right? If you come out like, to Rich's point earlier, right? If the ECB comes out or the Fed comes out or Tiff Macklin, the Bank of Canada comes out and says, well, listen, guys, the economy is probably going to go into the dumps here. So I, you know, we, we might end up cutting in, in Q2 of 2023. Well, you know, you're, you're setting up the expectations for that. So you kind of have to, to act tough. So the only reason why I say this is because, I know that there's a cohort of our audience that will literally take every single thing that a central banker comes out and says for the gospel. Hey, the Fed says they're going to keep going and then they're going to go to, to 5%. They're going to hold there for minimum 12 months. Like, I think it's, Keith, I don't know if you wanted to sort of chime in there. It's like, you know, in a, in a just say it's, it's a baseball game. You're the manager and your pitcher is starting to struggle. You walk out to the mound and say, Hey, how you feeling? Do you, you need to come out? He's going to say, "No, no, I'm good. I'm going. I need to stay in the game." Central bankers will always want to stay in the game, right? They're not going to be able to say, "Yeah, you know what? We think we're doing this now, but we think we're going to create a, a pretty big crisis next year." You can't do that, right? That that it doesn't work that way. But the Europeans, the other thing to think about as well, if you just say you. As a say the Europeans this morning, say they cut rates as an example, and the euro, you know, comes down 10, 20%, like something, you know, pretty dramatic. All of a sudden, you, you know, all of a sudden you're gonna start importing inflation yeah. back into the region. So if, if you want to try to conquer inflation now, you need a strong currency. So that's one of the reasons why the Bank of Canada, like they have to stay, you know, a bit on, on the hawkish side, 
that that's one way to, to uh, you know defeat inflation. But it's again, all these guys, Steve, they're in a really tough spot, especially the Europeans, because they've had no price discovery in the bond market for a really long time. Uh, credit spreads between the the nineteen member countries is incredibly important, and the Americans don't have to deal with that, and neither do the Canadians and Japanese and so forth. But they're, they're you know they're really sitting on a a very awkward chair right now. There's a couple of things I just want to add. There's one is, is this is what they're doing, I think is an indictment on the, the actions of the pre past two years, which is to say they over egged it. And so in, in some ways, like they, they, they went too hard. There was way too much stimulus in my view, both from the government side, especially from some of the central bankers side. And I think although they might feel like, in some cases, this might not be the best thing to do going into a, a, glo a slowing global economy. They like, you know, you're they're now overcompensating, I think, in some ways. Um, the second thing I would just say is we've had a situation and this relates to our we're in a inflection point. And part of that inflection point is we've gone from 10 or 12 years of negative real interest rates. And I think I'm hopeful now I'm always an optimist, so forgive me, but I think a lot of these central bankers are have had a come to Jesus moment and they've realized that having perpetually negative interest rates, in, sorry, in real terms, so negative real interest rates is not the way you should run a developed market economy. And so how, well, how do I define real interest rates? So I use the two-year government bond yield minus core. You can do this for the UK, Canada, the US, Europe. You can do this for obviously forget Japan. That's just, you know, that's a whole other animal, but a, an incredible amount of the world has had their interest rates below core inflation for years and years and years and years. And this is what precipitates housing bubbles in Germany, misallocation of resources into speculative BS tech in the US, housing bubbles in Canada. And I think finally, some of us have been preaching about this screaming at clouds for many, many years. But finally, I think they realize that that is a terrible way to run central bank policy. And again, historically, real rates have always been positive. We've had the crisis in 2010 and whatever it is, or 20, 2008 and 10. And now I think what we're seeing is the beginning of that shift where real interest rates are going to be positive again, and that's going to hurt. I got to say, it just reminded me of something. So I mentioned earlier about the uh, the investment committee meeting I had earlier the week. Oh, yeah. And one, one of the yeah, one of the best questions that was was offered to the gentleman was, "What risk do you see outside of Canada that could affect our portfolio?" And uh, oh, the poor guy it was literally five seconds of silence, and I could see the wheels turning. To, for the first time ever, they had to turn right, sweating. <laughs> It was right, and you know everyone was sweating. We're like, "Oh, geez, what's going on here?" And uh, finally, the the answer that the mouth slowly started to open, and the answer was none. Oh, come on, really? Come on. Man. And so, so for you know, this is a Canadian century podcast, but this is our point. Uh, like we just, you know, we're you know sort of describing Europe is in a lot of trouble here, and uh, one of the benefits we have in Canada is that the, you may not like what the central bank is doing. But they're they're pretty solid, right? It's a very they're they're put together well and in all that stuff. But relative to say the Europeans or someone else, which, which is you know very awkward and, and loose, that is a market that could snap in two. You know, yeah, that sounded good that time. And you didn't hear it. But that's one of the markets that could, that's a risk outside of Canada that could come ashore and hit and hit Canadians. Steve, what do you what, got there? Well, what did you say to when he said nothing? So if, if you're in a if you're in that scenario as, as a you're on the committee, it's not our job to tell him what he should be thinking about. Because after the meeting is over, this person will leave, and then we discuss it. Right? Did you share him a link to the pod? <laughs> I'm sure he knows who I am by now, and maybe he is listening, but. Um, uh, but but yeah, but that's how a committee work. You you get information from whoever the, the guest is speaking because they're the expert. And then after they leave, and then as a committee, you discuss what was given to you, and then we offer our own 
points of view that that's the way See, you would you roast him once it. he leaves the room no <laughs> no it's not roasting because you know you have a fiduciary duty on on the assets by the way if anyone out there if they need help with this kind of stuff like you know we're, we're available for that but um anyway it's, it's just a great world out. Um, just to kind of wrap things up here, uh, Rich, I know you're in the UK there. Uh, quick, quick commentary on the bank of England. Oh, Jesus. You've got me. Um, I, I think they raised rates. Oh no, I, I'm not going to bullshit you guys. I don't know what's going on in the bank of England. I mean, Still the, 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 too, the, too busy on that I, date. No, no, I've been just, I mean, to me, it's just that what I've been paying attention to is the UK housing market and the same problems that the Canadians no. are facing. Um, are the is what the UK is facing, and so we talk a lot about the the the, the fixed rate mortgages that are going to get ratcheted up. I mean, I have anecdotal evidences of friends who are just like, my mortgage is about to go up a thousand pounds. That's something I'm really thinking about. The wage growth stuff. I mean, the central bank. That's heavy, I mean, man. That's heavy. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's exactly what's happening. With and then and then we have also the you the locked in though on, that, on the lows. Yeah, I locked in it. I like I'm I'm not gonna brag, but if I did well, <laughs> let's just say that. <laughs> Sorry, Keith, tell, bail me out here with the Bank of England. Yeah, so they did a fifty, which was you know what was expected. There was no market movement on on the on the currency after it, so that that's one way to tell. But the other the other great thing about about the Brits, there was an old John Grisham novel years ago, and these three judges were in prison because they were bad doing bad things they actually acted as the uh as, as the council anyone any inmates had a legal problem with something they would go to these guys and they talk about it and they come out and the the decision was always by a vote of two to one right it was never unanimous on on anything so this morning the uh the bank of england they announced one third voted for a 50 basis point hike which is what they did one third wanted 75 and one third wanted zero so they're sort of like that's how they came to the 50 you know in, in the end they sort of split it up okay there you if go anyone understands british culture and how they work everything has to come to uh, an, an agreement with like a million people involved with hours and hours of meetings that's the way it it works right rich yeah i guess so and no one ever Measure. says no that's the other thing <laughs> That's how that girl took you up on that date. Eh? Oh, my all right, God. good, good place to uh, <laughs> good place to wrap it up. Um, we, as always, appreciate the support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least one friend or family member, and please leave us a uh, kind five star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, as mentioned, we will continue the podcast throughout the holiday season. Here, we'll be uh, announcing shortly uh, a Q and A live sort of uh, streaming event here so people can kind of engage and, and ask questions and, and just be a part of the, uh, the dialogue. So as always, see you next week.